Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. On today's program, I'll catch up with a Chicagoan working to improve accessibility in the arts. Charlotte Grumman is also one of 10 New Three Arts Award recipients. Theater critic Carrie Reed will join me to review Chicago Shakespeare's new production of Twelfth Night. Later in the show, we'll hear about a local big band that's taking things to new levels. And I'll talk to Chicago-based author Emma Noyes about the inspiration for her very personal new novel, Guy's Girl. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. Chicago-based Three Arts is ready to celebrate. The grant-making organization will be presenting its annual awards event tomorrow night, in person for the first time since 2019. And it'll be a true celebration. Three Arts will be awarding over $500,000 in unrestricted cash grants to local artists. Since 2007, the Chicago-based organization has supported more than 2,000 underrepresented artists with grants to further their creative pursuits. The nonprofit has added some additional awards over the years, including the Make-A-Wave grant and the Next Level program, but it all started with its namesake recognition, the Three Arts Award. This year, Three Arts is handing out 10 of its traditional Three Arts Awards. Each includes a $30,000 unrestricted grant. This new crop of awardees includes visual artists, musicians, choreographers, designers, playwrights, actors, and an accessibility advocate slash consultant. Mainly what I'm trying to do is to provide folks with disabilities or differences or just folks that want a more relaxed or sensory friendly environment to see performances. I work with companies and cultural spaces to try and make those services available for people who need them. This is Charlotte Chuck Grumman, a 2023 Three Arts Award recipient. I'm working not only as a consultant, but um, as an advocate for people with disabilities or differences in order to have places provide these services. Because getting to see a show, be a part of something, go to a library, go to a zoo, these are things that everybody should be able to do and feel like they can do independently. And I think it's the responsibility of cultural event spaces to make that appropriate and accessible. Grumman was drawn to this work in part by her own experience as someone with a sensory processing disorder and ADHD. After college, she began working with local cultural organizations on ways they could improve accessibility for people who receive and process art differently from mainstream expectations. Grumman started her own company called Windy City Accessibility. I recently caught up with Grumman in the River North neighborhood to talk about the Three Arts Award she's receiving and her journey to becoming an accessibility advocate. I love the idea of being able to serve individuals and their communities. I work with people from everywhere who have very different life experiences, but a lot of the services that I do 
um, benefit folks with autism, specifically developmental disabilities as well, brain injuries or traumatic brain injuries, and people with PTSD for my relaxed and sensory friendly performances. People show up and really love that I have tactile things for them to hold. I'll have weighted blankets, I'll have weighted items, that comfort items that people can bring into the theater. And I'll also do services for, I'll design um, services for tactile maps as well as touch tours with actors present and uh, usually either a director or one of the artistic representatives of the show um, where before the show we will go into the space we'll have a description of what is on set and people can touch my tactile maps and try and get themselves oriented then we'll usually have a couple of actors come out and the actors will describe the way that they physically move in space the way that they look in real life versus the way their character looks the way they talk versus the way their character talks and it provides a little bit of insight to not only those characters but the actors playing them and folks are able to imagine a little bit more of who they're seeing on stage and it's not a disembodied voice. So the touch tours, working with audio describers, relaxed and sensory friendly programs, also ASL interpreters, working with captions, those are things that I'm I'm, I'm really hoping to work on and develop but I know that there's going to be more which is so exciting. Grubin says there are tangible and sometimes invisible barriers at cultural institutions that make people with certain disabilities or conditions feel unwelcome. As a companion and, and a friend, I want to bring my friends to places that I enjoy. I don't want them to feel embarrassed at the door. I don't want them to feel like they're a burden because they're not. Showing up and using the services that should be available for everybody consistently shouldn't feel like a, like a treacherous path. You really, you really shouldn't have to beg to feel wanted at a place like this. Being at a theater, being at a museum, being at a library, a zoo, anywhere that you feel like you should be welcomed as a community member. So when we talk about some of these things that you're working on, they're still relatively new, even though I know this work has been going on for a while, but for some theater companies, if they reach out to you, it might be like the first time they've tried to do something sensory friendly. I bet if we polled every theater company and arts institution, they'd all say they want to be more accessible and want to do these things. What are some of the barriers of why some of these things just don't happen? Is it just come down to cost? That's a really good question because a lot of the time that's what it feels like. People haven't put these budgets in, they haven't grandfathered these budgets for accessibility into their yearly reviews. And it's something that people don't really have a budget for consistently across the board. It's not something that people don't want to have money for, but it's just that it hasn't been planned for. Now, cost is definitely something to take into consideration when organizations are trying to give these services. Now, one of the things that I have suggested and in the past to organizations is not adding additional performances for the sensory friendly relaxed, choosing one and letting all of the patrons know of that performance, that is what is expected. Offering free exchanges and returns to another performance date, but suggesting that that performance will be the relaxed and sensory friendly performance. It's important to involve the people you're trying to provide services for in the process. So doing a relaxed and sensory friendly performance is amazing. But if you're not involving people who need the service in the process of designing it, you might be doing yourself a disservice and you'd be doing the community a disservice. So the money part comes into um, the extra time that you're spending outside of this uh, design. It's, it's with other actors, it's with uh, sound designers, it's with lighting designers. So 
yes, it is an additional cost, but it is such a worthy investment and it doesn't have to be a lot of money. A lot of the accessibility services, the tactile maps I make out of things that I have at home. I'm an avid crafter and I have made things out of foam, I make things out of felt, I make things out of magnets a lot of the time, balsa wood, which you can get at the 99 cent store. And I make crafts out of what I have so that organizations don't feel like they have to spend a massive amount of money on these, these 3D printing things that I do. People can make these maps. It doesn't have to be me. I, I want to teach people how to do this because it is something that everybody has the resources laying around. Every theater has the resources around to make one of this. I can make this with office materials. So a lot of it comes down to attitude and yes, cost, but people want to do this. And my hope is by being an advocate and by creating these services, that it'll be modeled for other theaters and they'll say, well, we have to do this. How do we make it happen? Because when you put your mind to it, people can feel welcomed by simple actions you do. It doesn't have to be money that you're spending. So I think environment and the idea behind it is a huge factor in these theaters making, it hap making these programs happen. But I think that modeling the behavior and saying that this is what we expect is the easiest way for people to be like, yes, we can do this and we'll figure out how. So not to oversimplify, but part awareness, attitude, part cost. Is that yeah, fair? I say, uh, yeah, I would say it's definitely part uh, awareness, part cost, um, and part attitude. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm talking to Charlotte Grumman, a Chicago-based accessibility consultant and advocate. She's one of the 10 people receiving a 2023 Three Arts Award. Congratulations. What was your reaction when you found out that you were getting a Three Arts Award? I uh, think I'm still in shock about it. <laughs> um, I, I just have, have never felt as uh, supported and validated in the work that I do as being recognized for this award. I don't know if you know this, but I used to work at the Museum of Contemporary Art in their events department. And a couple of years ago, I helped the events department with the Three Arts Award ceremony at the MCA. Working in the background of that event to a couple years later being a person that's going to be recognized at that event is so powerful and it just shows that the communities in Chicago are so strong. Um, it's specifically organizations like Three Arts that are holding our communities higher and um, helping artists and helping community members thrive. I think it's just phenomenal and I'm so excited to be a part of it. One of the coolest part is, is not just the award, is the education that comes along with it. We are, as award winners, given a bunch of other additional educational opportunities, not only in accessibility, which I, again, personally so excited about, but um, in creating community spaces and engaging uh, communities in artwork. I'm, I'm so excited and so grateful, but I'm mostly, I'm just, I'm overwhelmed that there are people who care as much as I do about accessibility. The uh, Three Arts Award comes with a monetary award. Have you thought about how you're going to use that? Oh, absolutely I have. So as I mentioned earlier, I have multiple 3D printers for my tactile maps. Um, I am investing in not only a laser printer that bigger than the one that I have to work on the tactile maps and physical development, but um, I'm also uh, creating a lot more of my sensory comfort items. 
I'm really excited to invest some of this in my own brailler, which I don't have to borrow one, which is phenomenal. So I can create braille labels and braille resources um, from my studio, where I also have my 3D printers and my laser printer. Hopefully, my plan is to invest this in community organizations and provide services for people that can't afford it, for people whose cost is a barrier. Obviously, I am trying to provide these services already at a low cost, but if I'm able to provide services for somebody that can't afford it by using some of this money from 3Arts, I'll count that as a success. The 3Arts Award will be a big help as Grumman continues her work. Her hope is that in the not-too-distant future... Cultural organizations will be incorporating a lot of the things she's advocating for on a permanent basis. My hope is that in five years is that organizations will have this as part of their plan. And it's not just like a, hey, we got a grant from one person for $5,000. We're going to do one event, a one-off, and people will think that we're accessible. It's we will be providing this service consistently. We will be building an audience base that will come back consistently because we're providing quality services that make people feel welcomed. That's Charlotte Chuck Grumman. She's an accessibility consultant slash advocate and a 2023 Three Arts Awardee. You can learn more about her work at WindyCityAccessibility.com. Three Arts' annual award celebration is set to take place Monday, November 13th at the Harris Theater for Music and Dance. Tickets are still available if you want to join the party. You can learn more about Three Arts at... 3arts.org, that's the numeral 3, A-R-T-S, dot org. And a quick reminder, make sure to check out the show's website, theartsection.org. You can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. Check out theartsection.org. And you are listening to the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydig. Joining me remotely is theater critic Carrie Reed. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Jonathan is on assignment this week, so it's just me and Carrie. Chicago Shakespeare Theater is presenting a new production of Twelfth Night. Director Tyrone Phillips, who is a first-generation Jamaican-American, has moved the setting from the Balkan Peninsula in southeastern Europe to the Caribbean Isle. He's also added some contemporary songs and choreography into the mix. And Carrie, you were telling me off mic, even though these are completely different plays, the staging of Twelfth Night brought to mind Robert Falls' 2013 reimagining of Measure for Measure at the Goodman. Yeah, in a weird way. You know, in, in both Twelfth Night and Measure for Measure, there's these characters that you kind of feel like they don't belong in this world. They were not really dealt with in the way that you would feel comfortable in Measure for Measure, it's Isabella, the young, virtuous nun who refuses to sacrifice her virginity to save her brother's life. Now, Falls' piece was set in sort of the 1970s Times Square, very gritty, <clears throat> excuse me, very gritty, very grungy kind of setting. And you really felt that a character who is this, has this very rigid, highfalutin sense of morality cannot stay in that world. And in fact, 
in a very shocking twist at the very end, Falls had her killed off, which for a problem play was a pretty interesting and bold choice. Now, Twelfth Night is nowhere near that kind of, of play. It is most definitely a comedy, one of the most beloved ones that Shakespeare ever wrote. Um, often, you know, referred to because of all the gender switching that often happens in in his comedies. But there's a character, for, for those of our listeners who haven't seen it in a while, named Malvolio, who's sort of this stiff-necked, steward character to Olivia, one of the women who is, you know, being chased by Duke Orsino. It all gets very complicated, but in, there's a whole subplot with the way that Malvolio is treated. And yeah, he's a bit of a, he's a, bit of a pain in the, you know, in the keister. <laughs> But the punishment that's rendered to him has always felt so cruel and out of out of proportion to his actual sins. He's not trying to have anyone killed or anyone banished. Well, in a way, he's just asking that you know that the the party going, hard partying, bad house guests of his mistress, <laughs> the Countess Olivia, be you know turned out of home. And honestly, he kind of has a point because they're not very good house guests. And they they really do this sort of gaslighting, cruel thing to him. I don't want to overemphasize it, because it's not the main point of the story, but it's always stuck out to me that Malvolio at the end just kind of stalks off stage and says, I'll be avenged on the whole lot of you. And you're like, what's what's that guy going to do now that everybody's kind of paired off? (laughs) There's a lovely moment that Tyrone Phillips has worked in, and this is a very well-thought-out production. I need to say everything just sort of made sense to me at every step along the way. It's, it's an encounter between Festy, the fool, uh, the jester, who, as is the case so often in Shakespearean plays, sees more and understands more about people than they know about themselves. And he had been kind of part of this whole plot against Malvolio, and he makes this gesture, this sort of conciliatory gesture, that really made so much sense to me and sort of added an extra kind of felicitous note of empathy and humanity in a, in a production that is absolutely bursting with joy, with song, with love. Um, so I was very happy to see that. It's the only production I can think of that I've ever seen of this play that that really interrogated, like, what happens to Malvolio and why are we okay with it? Yeah, And, um, yeah, it's just beautifully cast. Uh, Tyrone Phillips is the artistic director and co-founder of Definition Theater, a BIPOC-led company that's been around for about 10 years, and they're in the midst of doing a fundraising campaign to build, from the ground up, an art center in Woodlawn. Um, they've been doing notable work all around, you know, you know, all along, but I think this just really, uh, it, it should, if, it ha- if he's not already getting national attention, I, I think this is a show that should give him, you know, that kind of a calling card. It really is just that good, and I, I know I may sound a little gushy about this, but I was just I was just enthralled from start to finish. And this is not necessarily my favorite Shakespearean comedy. I think I'd give As You Like It a little bit of a nod over that. But it's just, as I said, very well put together. The Caribbean setting allows us to have, you know, snippets of Bob Marley at one point when Duke Orsino for the story for those who don't know is twins shipwrecked on an island, Viola uh, assumes the identity of a young boy and starts working for a duke. Uh, Duke Orsino, who is trying to get the Countess Olivia, who is in mourning, to accept his his offers of marriage. Olivia instead falls in love with Viola, who is disguised as a boy. Is this all very confusing? Yes, it can be. <laughs> but at one point, Orsino is sort of, um, you know, bemoaning early on that the Lady Olivia, that Olivia will not give him the time of day 
and his musician just starts quietly playing Bob Marley's No Woman, No Cry. So that's, <laughs> so that's fun. Um, and it's, you know, there's light, there's color, there's dancing, and there's a real sense of, you know, the, the sense that it's a whole community that is coming together to make this story work, both in terms of the ensemble of artists that Phillips has put together for this, but also in the connections between the characters on stage. And I think that's one thing that I find really compelling in this production. Like, there's different, you know, different things are happening at different times, and some of the characters have sort of parallel stories. And in this production, when it all comes together, it absolutely makes sense, and it absolutely feels like this is the way it should be. There isn't a sense of, hmm, I wonder why that, that couple ended up together, or... Is that really the way it would have gone? <laughs> Which sometimes happens to me in Shakespearean comedies. I know that things are, you know, tied up, and you think, hmm, well, maybe that's just how they decided to end this. <laughs> <laughs> Which has always been the case with Measure for Measure, frankly. Nobody in that play ends up, hmm. in my view, paired off with anyone that doesn't make you think, eh. Here, though, it's Twelfth Night, it's just an absolute joy. You mentioned Bob Marley, but there's some other contemporary tunes mixed oh. in. Yeah, there's a terrific rendition of Try a Little Tenderness. And I want to point out that um, Israel Aaron Ford, who plays Festy the Fool, is the primary singer in this. And he has a terrific voice. I would buy a record of his tomorrow. Um, But there's also a little bit of sting. There's um, just a beautiful sound design overall uh, from Willow James. The visuals are very colorful and very bright, except for this one kind of dark scene where the the joke against Malvolio, as I said, goes goes one step too far to where you're like, okay, now this is just being really cruel. And appropriately, the environment gets a little bit darker, you know, a little little more stark there. But otherwise, it is filled with light. It is filled with color. It is filled with wonderful costumes by Christine Pasquale, uh, scenic design by Sydney Lynn, wonderful projection designs by Mike Tutaj. I'm sorry if I'm just giving a list of names, but <laughs> this is really one of the finest productions of this play that I've ever seen. I, I, I think it is the best production I've ever seen. Um, and I know it's one that's going to live in my mind for a long time and it's set a really high bar for this play in particular for me. But did you like it? No, did okay. I like it? I'm not so sure. You know, I'm a little on the phone. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, but I think what it is, too, I have a feeling in watching this, like, there's just small interactions between the cast and the audience, but it feels like we were being very much invited in and that happens at chicago shakespeare you know their courtyard theater their main theater you do have seating right by the side so there is always that little bit of a sense of an intimacy on that thrust stage so you almost feel like you're invited you know to this party on the beach and 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 these people have gathered to tell you this great story and that's for a cold chicago winter that also is not a bad feeling to be able to uh to take in right Chicago Shakespeare's Twelfth Night continues through November 26th. Carrie, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome. You're tuned into the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. Does that melody sound familiar? Perhaps you played a little Donkey Kong back in the day. This is DK Island Swing, a reoccurring musical theme throughout the Donkey Kong video game series. Of course, when you play Donkey Kong Country on Super Nintendo, it sounded like this. (laughs) 
took me forever to beat this game. It sounds a little different when a big band takes it on. And that's exactly what the Chicago-based Blue Shift Big Band has done. DK Island Swing is just one of the video game-inspired covers on the 17-piece ensemble's 2022 album, Joystick Jazz. An appreciation of video games is one of the things the co-founders of the Blue Shift Big Band, guitarist Chris Parsons and drummer Joel Bear, have in common. Another is the love of big bands. I recently caught up with the Chicago musicians to talk about two things that normally don't go together, jazz and video games. What's the origin story of the Blue Shift Big Band? Joel and I met at then Elmhurst College 2010. Fall of 2010, we played in combo together and really hit it off. And then after we had graduated, we'd get each other on gigs. You know, I got him on a church gig. He got me on a couple blues gigs. And but we always had this love of big band. We would always talk about, you know, our favorite bands and favorite drummers, favorite rhythm sections. And a few years ago, he had this idea. He had enough stock charts to just say, hey, let's start a reading band. And I was in. We had been looking. We hadn't played with each other for a while. And uh, that was a fun excuse. And it quickly turned from being a reading band to saying, ooh, let's start doing some. Joel wanted to be recording more, and we have a philosophy of recording your own original arrangements or music. So started getting original charts commissioned, and within a few years, within two years, I think we had the first two records recorded. Not released, but we had them recorded. So, mm. And then it's just picked up a lot of steam in the last couple of years. Yeah, definitely. What goes into putting a big band together? Do you have to recruit players? <laughs> a lot of money. Yes, lots of time and money. Uh, we had a pretty good sort of base of players from, I went to Elmhurst, like Chris said, and then I went to DePaul after that. So we knew a lot of, of players who were good and who liked playing big band. So we just started plugging guys or girls in and seeing what happened. And, um, you know, we go through players based on their interest and how much they wanted to contribute to the band and that kind of thing. But eventually we found a group of people who wanted to do this. They wanted to play. They wanted to show up every week. What's the size of the band now? 17-piece? 17-piece yeah. big band. So five saxes, four bones, four trumpets, guitar, bass, drums, piano. So like Chris said, we started out playing stock charts and I like strongly believed that if we're gonna record anything, like we're not gonna record a bassy tune. You know, they've are, like the bassy band has recorded definitive versions of all those tunes. What are we gonna do for that? But if we could record our own music, we could play it and record it better than anybody else. So that was kind of the impetus to start getting Chicago arrangers involved. We started paying guys to write for the band. Chris writes for the band. And I think now we're six years in and we have a book of about 85 original arrangements. Wow. Yeah. That keeps growing. So yeah, like Chris said, a lot of time, a lot of money. And the big thing, I think a driving thing for our success is we wanted it to be a band. We'd played it enough, and this isn't a knock on anybody at all. Um, we just played in a lot of reading bands or like rotating personnel, big bands and it only costs money to bring the best players in the world in for a recording session, but we wanted to have a band, and I feel like we finally have crossed 
that pivot point of saying everybody here today is in the band. It's not just a gig for anybody here. And um, we look at the success of like the Vanguard band, the Basie band, you know, uh, Clayton Hamilton have been kind of a big influence on how they run their band on us. And it's a family, you know, you're not writing trumpet one part, you're writing a Snooky Young part. And that's kind of the philosophy we've been able to, we've been lucky enough to be able to take with this band over the last couple of years is we know the players we're writing for. And when someone needs to leave, it's actually kind of a bummer now because we built a thing around what people in the band are doing, but that's a fun place for us to be. We knew we weren't going to be making a lot of money on this, so we might as well enjoy the people we're with and... You got into the big band game for the the money and oh yeah and yeah. drugs and women yeah yeah all of, yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the sex drugs and, and big band yeah, that's, that's why I got a job in too yeah <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> We were talking off mic, and one of the, the things that came up was there's still maybe some misconceptions about the term big band that you guys run into sometimes. I think when people hear the term big band, they think World War II, Glenn Miller, uh, Benny Goodman, and, and that's part of it. That's part of the history of the music, for sure. But there's so much... When I hear that term, I think of a kind of ensemble, an American orchestra, saxophones, trumpets, trombones, rhythm section. I mean, my favorite arranger is Bill Holman. What would always be said about him is he plays the orchestra. And I feel like that's what we're trying to do with our band is, you know, that's a lot of a, a lot of frequencies you're dealing with when it comes to a big band. So you have a lot of potential. And then you have a rhythm section. And luckily, because we our influences as players stem from not just jazz, but rock, blues, many different styles, you can tap into... You know, you want a Zeppelin thing to happen for four bars, it'll happen for four bars mm-hmm. because we have a lot of uh, influence coming in. But then that's that's been um, really fun for our writers and arrangers to kind of have carte blanche and just say, go for it. And uh, it's not in the mood. Right. <laughs> One of the things we talk about with this band is, you know, in some big bands, there are star soloists you know, where there will be a band full of amazing improvisers, and that's kind of what the show is based on, and that's amazing. But in our band, we feel like the charts are the stars. Mm-hmm. These amazing pieces of music that are difficult and we're executing at a high level, that's what we think is, is really fun and incredible. And within those, we do have great soloists, but the music isn't supposed to be just a vehicle for improvisation. It includes improvisation. Yeah. But the charts are, they're amazing pieces of music. When you talk about like a, a reading band, so what does that mean compared to like what you're doing? A reading band is just like the same kind of, you know, Basie charts, Maynard charts, Buddy Rich charts, just the same kind of, there's like this, what would you call it? Um, a canon of big band material that exists that everybody's been playing since senior year of high school through college and then going on. And it's cool because there there's a familiarity between all the reps so people can just kind of walk into a band and as long as you know enough about the people you've read the charts a million times you're going to be fine with our stuff we're the only ones to have ever read it so you have to really put the work in when you come into this band because it's the music's not easy yeah there's a lot of difficult arrangements yeah and we don't ask the writers to write grade two charts like we ask to throw the everything at the kitchen sink and then tell you know we're not putting limitations on what the music is from the arrangers and writers. So 
it's a little bit more demanding musically. You can't just show up and read it. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. You're tuned into the arts section on WDCB. I'm talking with drummer Joel Bear and guitarist Chris Parsons about their group, the Blue Shift Big Band. The ensemble, which officially formed in 2017, wants to push the envelope of what a big band can sound like. So it's not just a swing band. It's, <laughs> it's certainly not a dance band. But a lot of the, the tunes we're playing are like one of the newer Mario tunes that we're playing is like a surf guitar feature. Or, you know, we're playing stuff that's kind of got some a lot of other influences, rock and metal influences, as well as swing and Latin and the more traditional big band kind of genres. So you mentioned Mario, and that's what we in the biz call a segue. <laughs> uh, I was reading something, I think, about Fulton Street uh, Collective and how they're celebrating 10 years, and then I saw uh, Blue Shift Big Band was playing there recently and was going to be performing video game music, and that like sparked my interest. So as we were trying to figure out approaches for original big band music, we were commissioning charts of standards and, and kind of standard jazz rep new arrangements of, of that kind of stuff. But we wanted something that might grab people who didn't know anything about big band music or jazz or, or whatever. We wanted something that just connected with people. And for our generation, I don't know if there's anything that's sort of more salient than these, these great melodies coming out of early classic video games. People like Koji Kondo come to mind, Mario, Zelda, those great melodies. So we started having guys arrange charts in this, you know, for the, from these games and include improvisation sections. And pretty quickly, we started asking for more interesting ensemble parts, and it really started growing in our in our gigs. And then I wanted to record it. So in January of 2020, we recorded our first, both our first sort of standards originals record and our first video game big band record in a two-day session at Electrical Audio. And then shortly after that, the pandemic hit, and <laughs> we had a lot of time on our hands to mix and master and shop that around. But we ended up getting picked up by uh, a label in LA called I Am 8-Bit, who they kind of manufacture and produce premium video game merchandise, as mm -hmm. I would say. And so our first album came out with them in November of 2022, and it's gonna be out on vinyl soon. And our second record with them is going to come out as well pretty soon. First album's called Joystick Jazz. Yes. And it was interesting because I, as I mentioned, so I read about what you, what the band was doing. And so I started researching and I was finding all these articles on like video game sites and not on like jazz sites. You know, I found some on jazz sites too, but it was just interesting. So like the video game community seemed to, to take an interest. Have you guys received any of that feedback or, or heard yeah. from like video game fans? Like I, crossing I think we've over? had people interested in the band who they, they don't really know anything about j the jazz canon. They don't know who Louis Armstrong is or John Coltrane but they know these tunes from Sonic and Zelda and Mario. Mm -hmm. And that connects, like exactly what we set out to do, that connects with them on like a, a really personal level. Now all of a sudden this music, which they might not have ever heard or dreamed of before, besides in the game, has meaning to them. And I think that's pretty cool. The other angle we were intentional about is there, there are some bands out there already doing the video game big band thing. And it's just, you know, it, it, wasn't really our lane. I don't want to call it tongue in cheek because that makes it disparaging. But it's it's the same. The, the I think the the way I always put it is nobody knows what musical all the things you are came from, and it's not the way you know boppers were playing it in the fifties. And but they took a great melody 
in great harmonies and adapted it towards this this style for bebop and that was kind of the approach we wanted to take with this video game stuff is there's great melodies here there's great harmonies there and it's recognizable to a whole new generation so that's the thing i think we're really proud of on this is it stands on its own you don't need to know about video games to dig this music we've had people um you know, teachers of ours come out to our gigs and check it out who've never played a video game in their life. And they go, if you didn't tell me this was from a video game, I would have just thought it was a great <laughs> tune. And that's the win. And then at the same time, we have a kid now that's come to three of our shows. He saw us at Hey Nani out in Arlington Heights. He's about 13 or 14 years old. And he wants to write a big band chart. It's a video game tune he wants to write for us. But he had always had an interest. He saw something we were doing and wants to has gotten into big band music and asks for recommendations on who he should listen to outside. It's like, well, you know, you could serve two, two purposes here. And as long as you get kids inspired to like the genre and like the art form, here's a ton of stuff you can do with it. So that's been really gratifying for us is the reach it has is to kids that know about video games, but don't know about big band. And then big band fans just hearing new music. Yeah. That's, that's great. You both referenced charts a, a few times, so I just wanted to, to get into that a little more. As there are these iconic video game scores that are instantly recognizable to a lot of people, but the, the music, the charts, aren't readily available. Those are something you have to create for a big band. Correct. So typically this process goes something like this. I'll pick a tune that I think would be a good big band tune, or... I'll talk to one of our arrangers and say, hey, are, is there a tune that really speaks to you that you would have fun doing? And then they write this out for our specific instrumentation, like I said, which is 17-piece jazz orchestra. So, no, these aren't stock charts. You can't just buy them. We're buying them, which is part of the upfront cost of having a big band is, you know, it costs more to have someone write a chart than just to go out and buy a stock arrangement of a famous tune. But like I said, we get to imprint our creativity on these charts. You know, as a drummer, I get to play with the parts and create um, these sections and give my interpretation of what this chart should be, uh, which is cool. But yes, everybody's reading music on a gig because that's the only way you can get 17 people to play together. We're not just a video game band. It, that just seems to be the most lucrative part of the, right, right. <laughs> the business sure. right now. But yeah, everything we have is original. You can't get it anywhere else, which is fun. Yeah, I think that's an important component of this band is the original music, the sort of, I guess, branding, for lack of a better word. Just If you come to a, a Blue Shift big band show, you're going to hear us do our thing. And I think that's pretty unique among big bands in Chicago where a lot of bands are playing, you know, great charts, Basie and, and Thad and Mel and those kinds of things. But it was important for us to do our own thing. And you guys are doing some new innovative things uh, from the big band perspective. How do audiences respond to, to some of the more ambitious material? When we do our Andy's residency, you know, we'll play two sets every second Monday. And to see the reaction of these people who for the most part, I would say the crowd there doesn't know what they're coming in for. They're, it's a tourist crowd, and they're coming to see whatever Andy's is presenting. And when it's us and they hear like a Zelda thing, I mean, the reactions we've been getting are pretty amazing. Like people cheer at the end of these tunes. And it's yeah. like for for big band, for Zelda. Yeah. <laughs> and But that's really cool because mm -hmm. these people who didn't know what they were coming in for, really it connects with them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really exciting. So people can see you at uh, Andy's the second Monday of the month every week and then Fulton Street. 
We're there typically the first Thursday of every month. Favorite uh, video game of all time? Uh, Super Mario 64. Yeah, it's probably the best one ever. <laughs> okay. It's me, Mario. Um, that was quick. <laughs> yeah. As a Nintendo 64 fan, I'll also throw Star Fox 64 in there. No, oh, okay. Fair enough. Big Nintendo 64 guys. Chris, Joel, thanks so much. Appreciate you coming to the studio. It was a pleasure talking with you. Of course, thanks for thanks having for, us. Yeah, thank you for having us. That was Chris Parsons and Joel Baer, the co-founders of the Blue Shift Big Band. You can check them out live at Andy's Jazz Club this Monday night and go to blueshiftbigband.com to find out where else they'll be playing and you can check out some of their recorded music. That's at blueshiftbigband.com. This is the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Chicago-based author Emma Noyes is getting personal in her new book, Guy's Girl. After graduating from Harvard and working at a beer company for a period, the North Shore native made the decision to pursue her true passion, writing. Noyes published three young adult fantasy novels in 2021 and 2022. At the age of 25, Noyes began writing what would turn into her fourth book, Guy's Girl. The love story follows two young professionals who can't seem to quite make it work despite an immediate connection. The main character, Ginny Murphy, is dealing with the typical challenges of young adulthood, figuring out her love life and navigating a career, but she's also struggling with an eating disorder. While Guy's Girl is a work of fiction, the inspiration for the story comes from Noyce's own experiences. I recently caught up with the Chicago-based author to talk about her new book and her lifelong passion for writing. Was writing always something that you were interested in? So I, my siblings and my parents always say that I either always had like a journal in my hand or a bunch of stuffed animals in the corner, just like creating little towns and, and scenes and stories in my head. That was just kind of what I was naturally drawn to. And then off to, to college, you go to Harvard. Are you thinking like, I, I want to write professionally or does that take a back seat to like more practical goals? You know what? I actually really wanted to go to film school. Um, I In high school, I found myself, when I was daydreaming in class, I would write little screenplays on a notebook, like when I was supposed to be paying attention in math or biology. And I, I really wanted to apply to film school. And my mom was the one who was like, you know what? Your test scores are pretty good. Like, let's see if you can... I would really prefer that you apply and just do a liberal arts degree and then if you really still want to go into film afterward, then you can do that. And so I got totally sucked into the whole Ivy League, you know, I ended up applying to like consulting and bigger, you know, corporate jobs when I was there, because that's, that's really what they push on you. Um, and I worked a corporate job for several years after college. And it was only when I was super miserable in that job and taking every spare moment to write that I realized, okay, you know, I keep coming back to this. This is, this is what I really want to do. For my listeners that, that may not be familiar, you've authored three young adult fantasy novels. Yes. Is the fantasy genre, would you consider that your, your favorite to read? Um, I mean, I read, I'm such a mood reader. Like, I would say I primarily read fantasy and romance, you know, sometimes together because there's a lot of fantasy romance books. But, like, I love a good thriller every now and then, a good mystery, something that'll make me cry. But fantasy was definitely my favorite growing up when I was a kid, like that. You know, I was such a Harry Potter, Twilight, you know, that kind of girl. 
let's talk about guys girls this is your new book and departure yeah. from the fantasy titles you've written before this book opens yeah. with a, a letter from you to the the reader explaining why this project was so important to you can you walk me mm -hmm. through a little bit about what led you to to write guys girl so it was i think i started writing this in 2021 um so when i started writing guys girl and i had been struggling with an eating disorder for probably like seven years at that point. Um, before I left for college, I started um, exhibiting behaviors that were anorexic behaviors, but I didn't obviously didn't know it at the time. Like with eating disorders, it's so easy to stay in denial. Um, but what I really what I really was doing was starving myself, and um, that continued on for a really long time. And it wasn't until that anorexia morphed into bulimia that I went and sought the help that I had needed for so long. Um, and it was while I was in the recovery process that I started to write Guy's Girl. And like I have done my whole life, I was you know, journaling furiously through all of that. And a lot of my journal entries made their way into the book. The book is a completely fictionalized story of a girl named uh, Jenny Murphy. But a lot of the writing that you see in the book that she does about recovery is pulled straight from my own experience. So it became kind of a blurring of fiction and reality for me. Was that something that you had to consider? Like, do I write like a straight nonfiction memoir type of thing? Or did you just know mm -hmm. like you wanted to take on this topic through a fictional lens? I think fiction has always been what I'm naturally drawn to, both reading and writing. I also, when I think about a nonfiction book, and maybe this is, you know, false, but when I think of nonfiction, I'm like, oh, like, that can only be written by really important, well-known people. And I'm like, I'm just, you know, a regular girl from Chicago. Like, I, who's going to want to read a memoir by me? So that was part of why I made it a fiction, because I thought, okay, I'll have a better chance of, of getting this out there in the world and people actually reading it. Did I read you started to post about your effort to get well on social media and the, and the response you got? Did that kind of feed this idea that there is this interest and this need for a story like this? So I didn't start posting about my own recovery process until after I'd finished Guys Girl and started querying um, agents and publishers with it. I had been... The nature of an eating disorder is it's very secretive. It's very... You know, you don't want to tell anyone what you're doing, especially with bulimia, because it's so, it's such a, like, sort of visceral, you know, gross, I guess is one way to put it, is, is a way people would describe throwing up. And, like, it's such a sort of, you feel a lot of self-loathing when you're doing it. Um, like, the fact that I'm on, like, talking to a radio station host right now um, about my experience being bulimic is something that, like, three years ago, I never would have I never would have thought I'd even be able to say those words in public. And it was only after I had written the book and I was like, okay, this is a book that actually, this needs to be out in the world. And I, I really want to give a voice to people who were in my position and were too scared to speak up and say anything. So it was only after I'd done that and I knew that Guy's Girl was going to be coming out that I decided, okay, you know what, I'm, I'm actually really going to start talking about this publicly, including on my social media. And I was like shocked by by the overwhelming amount of responses that I received from people saying, you know, I've never seen someone talk about bulimia on social media before. Thank you so much for what you're doing. And that, I mean, that's the best, that's the best part of my job <laughs> for mm -hmm. sure.
If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek, and this is the arts section. I'm talking with Chicago-based author Emma Noyes about her new book, Guy's Girl. In the book, when the the Ginny character finally does tell someone uh, her love interest, Adrian, you can feel it is such a tremendous moment because mm-hmm. so much has led up to that moment. And just you were kind of alluding to it just there, but was it challenging diving into this experience that you lived and, and then having to go back through that and then write about it? Absolutely. I mean, like I said, it was kind of a blurring of the lines. Like I had done some writing just in my own journal on my recovery experience before I started writing this book in earnest. But when I really started putting this book together, I was, as I said in the uh, the author's note, fresh off a breakup. I had just relapsed. Um, I'd been like purge free for several months. And then I had a horrible relapse and, and really fell back into to my disease. And I was deeply depressed, you know, really unhappy, didn't want to get out of bed. And the one thing that really got me out of bed was sitting down on my computer and writing. And that was really how this story came into being for me. So it was it was difficult at times to write, but it also felt incredibly cathartic. Like I was getting out all the words that had built up inside me over such a long period of time. And you write about this in your letter at the beginning, your author's note about how a book like this could have potentially been of use to, to you when you were in your early 20s or in your teens. Yes. From your perspective, what are some of the misconceptions about eating disorders that, that bother you the most? Oh my gosh, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> when, I, when I posted for the first time that, um, that I said that I had been anorexic, you know, people commented and said, how could you have been anorexic? You weren't even that thin. Yikes. <laughs> and that, for me, is a big one. Like, not just, I mean, obviously that's a horrible thing to say, but, like, people of any body shape can have and do have eating disorders. It's not based on, you know, your BMI or whatever. You don't have to be scary thin to, to be anorexic or bulimic, and, and many people aren't. Um, another one, uh, the way... Part of the reason that I wrote Guy's Girl was because the only way I had ever seen bulimia portrayed in the media was kind of an almost, like, comical portrayal of, like, stuffing yourself full of food and then running to the bathroom and throwing it all up. And that is, of course, one way that bulimia manifests, but it's also a, it's a much more nuanced. There's many ways that it can come up. You know, it can be... Um, you can abuse laxatives, you can abuse exercise. Um, it's, it's a very, it's a much more nuanced disease. Um, and people just, I mean, it's not a, it's not a happy thing to look at. So I understand why people don't want to think about it, but there really are just so, so many misconceptions out there about eating disorders. And that those then lead to like these stigmas that make it even more, even though it is a, a disease that it, but there's something that's like, it's viewed as like this weakness or choice sometimes? Yeah, well, with with anorexia, it's almost the way our culture speaks about diet and exercise, it's so easy to get away, you know, I want to say that in quotes, with being anorexic because people look at you and they say, oh my God, you look so good, you lost weight, you eat so healthy, how do you do that? How do you, like, never eat any French fries or whatever? oh my gosh, you exercise every day, that's amazing, when really these behaviors are compulsive and abusive to your body. Um, but it's really easy to like 
society looks at them as positive in a way. And with bulimia, there's nothing, there's nothing positive about uh, throwing up. Like it's something that your body does naturally when it's sick. And it's something that I, I have best friends who are completely afraid of throwing up just in general. It's like one of their phobias. Like it's not something that's viewed positively in any way. So it, it has much more of a, a stigma and a sort of, again, like this feeling of self-loathing that you get when you do it. Are there any examples in pop culture that, in your opinion, do a good job depicting a first-person account of someone living with an eating disorder? Ooh, good question. I think first things that come to mind would be there was a movie called To the Bone that came out on Netflix. It was not super popular, but as and I I think there were it was there were some problems with it for sure, but as someone who I had not developed bulimia at the time, I was but I was going actively going through anorexia. Um I found what I liked about it was that it showed you kind of the ugly truth of an eating disorder, but it also, there was some levity to it. Like they're, you know, they were able to find love and laughter and, and that was something that I liked about it. Um, and then my other, there's two more. One, uh, in the book Normal People by Sally Rooney, it's not about eating disorders, but the main character, Marianne, um, does have a period of anorexia at the time. It's never stated as such, but it's like very obvious to someone like me who's been through that disease, um, and I just love that book in general, and I think she handles it very delicately and, and very well. And the last one is a book called Thin Girls by Diana Clark. That's probably my favorite representation of, like, the most well-sensitively handled representation I've seen of it in, in media before. That's a good list. Do you have hopes now that it's out, what readers take away from it? Oh my gosh. Um, yes. Yeah. First of all, um, I hope that anyone who reads the book who is going through anorexia, bulimia, or any other kind of eating disorder, I hope that they feel seen and understood. I hope that it resonates with them. If they haven't gotten help, I mean, my number one, I don't know that I think a novel can do this, but my number, number one hope would be that it pushes them in that direction because speaking up and, and getting help is the most important thing that you can do and I wasn't able to I tried for so long to quote unquote fix myself on my own and I just I couldn't I, I needed support and those who read it who have maybe have loved ones who they know or they don't know might be struggling with eating disorders um, I hope that it helps them understand have like a vocabulary to talk about these things and, and reach out and check in on people and, and make sure you know it means a lot I think in, in my own family, I think sometimes my my siblings and my parents, um, they feel sort of awkward, you know, saying, how are you doing? How How is your eating? But to me, when they do, it means a lot to me, like just to just to hear that and know that they're thinking about that and, and checking in on me. That, that means a lot to me. And for those who maybe have no experience, just to understand eating disorders more and to know that it's not it's not really about being thin at the end of the day. Yes you are obsessed with your weight and you're obsessed with the shape of your body, but it's way more about emotional regulation, trauma. I really hope that it just kind of, it helps people understand eating disorders in a different way. I have like a side note here. We can end on a little lighter note. Um, so when you, sure. when you search, uh, Emma Noise in Google, a bunch of things yeah. auto-populate. So it'll be like Emma Noise books, Emma Noise TikTok. Yeah. Then like the fifth one down is uh, Vampire Diaries. Are, are, you, <laughs> are you a fan of that show? Is that true? Yeah. 
I, one of my first, like, really, you know, whatever, viral videos on TikTok was a parody that I did of The Vampire Diaries. I am completely obsessed with that show. And oh, okay. funny because it is light, but also it was a show that really helped me through my recovery, which is it's funny. So it kind of connects in a way. Oh, wow. Okay. The reason I'm bringing it up, not just to be like, oh, you, you, you watch Vampire Diaries, is because <laughs> on the day I started researching for our conversation as yeah. I was reading your book, so I, I Googled Emma Noise, and then my buddy uh, texted me that he was at his, uh, it was the exact same day, he texted me that he was at yeah. his local Jewel in Mount Prospect, and he's like, yeah, the yeah. actors from Vampire Diaries are here, like, si oh signing bottles of their, like, their bourbon. Their bourbon. Bourbon, yes. So it was oh like God, this weird years. moment where like Vampire Diaries <laughs> came into my life like twice on the same day. <laughs> that is hilarious. That is it's just a random, yeah. I heard, I saw on social media that they were at, you know, it was Jewel or Binnie's or something like that. And I didn't know until after the fact. And I was like, how? Oh, I missed it. Like, I could have <laughs> gone and met them. <laughs> oh, my yeah, my friend said, I, I walked into Jewel and there was an abnormally large amount of young women standing in line. <laughs> and he's like, and then I found out that it was Vampire Diaries and they have their own uh, bourbon. And so. Well, you can tell your friend I'm incredibly envious of him. <laughs> and, then my, and then my wife's friend on the same day, she's a huge fan. She's like, I missed it. And then I'm oh, like. I know. I'm Such interviewing this author that uh, apparently has a connection. Um so, <laughs> my only connection is my unhealthy obsession. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, Emma, I really enjoyed the book. Thanks so much for making time to talk with me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Gary. I really appreciate it. That's author Emma Noyes. Her new book, Guys Girl, is out now. You can find it everywhere books are sold. And you can learn more about Emma at her website, EmmaVRNoise.com. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Art Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the show's website, theartsection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name's Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Art Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening. Love me, love me, love me, say you do. Let me fly away with you for my love is like the wind and wild is a wind give me